You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. Got a two-part series for you now called The Prayer of Jabez. And this was presented by Brother Jay Mayak from the book uh, Brantford Ecclesia in Canada. Um, and in this, uh, I believe Brother Jay looks at the BASF, the principles therein, and the rejection of teachings such as theistic evolution and evolutionary creation. Um, so an intriguing title um, of these two talks, we've got his sorrow and his blessing. Um, and like I said, I believe um, Brother Jay is going to cover those two aspects within these talks. Um, but I'm not sure. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. Um, drop us a line if you like it. Tell us what you would like to hear. Um, And until next time, God bless. So how are we introduced to this man Jabez? Well, he's nestled there. His little biography, including his prayer, is nestled there in what we would call the chronology, the genealogy of Judah. So Jabez is presented to us as a son of Judah, or at least he stands related to the tribe of Judah in some particular way. Judah was a son of Israel, who was a son of Isaac, who was a son of Abraham, who was a son of Shem, who was a son of Adam. And it's important to say that because that's how Jabez is introduced to us in the book of Chronicles. Jabez of Judah, of Israel, of Isaac, of Abraham, of Shem, of Adam, all the way back down. And that's how First Chronicles is broken up. You get a, a couple of verses about the sons of Noah, um, of Ham. You get a few more verses about Japheth. And then the rest of First Chronicles, as it relates to the genealogy of First Chronicles, relates to how it is that Israel has come from Shem. And so we come to this particular man, and we only get two verses. And you know what? It's, it's really worth asking a question to reflect personally on what our two verses would say. How is it that the God of heaven could, could assess us, could evaluate us, could sum us up in a particular way? What would our two verses say about us? Well, if we were to summarize Jabez, we get that summary right away. It says in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles chapter 4 that Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. So he was honorable. And it's, it's worth having a look at that particular word, which we will in just a couple of moments. But this quality of honor was important to God. And because of that, God knows who Jabez is. There was something of worth, something of value, something of substance in Jabez. 
and we find that God worked in his life, that he was interested in him, that he was worth something as he stood related to the God of heaven. And that's really something, brothers and sisters, families, that we, that we try to instill in our children. The world is, does it a different way and, and doesn't have to do with value as it stands related to God. And so I'm, I'm a grade four teacher. I teach nine and 10-year-olds here in Ontario. And, you know, it's amazing the struggles that prevail even amongst grade four students sometimes. Uh, because they don't feel valued. They don't feel loved. And we understand how important it is that growing up in the truth, surrounding ourselves with our ecclesial family, that we instill in each other and in our children, the fact that God is creating something in us of value. He does love us. He does want us. But as we start to make choices in our lives, that is really where it comes to assessing our value. And we don't always make the right decisions. And we ought never to lower the standards of what is of value before God. But when we fail, it just means that we ought to ascend back up to that level, to try again, to keep going without compromising that which we know to be true. So there was something of value here of Jabez, as as we'll see. Well, I want you to keep something else in mind, brothers and sisters, as we move through the study too, and that is this. There is a pattern in the prayer and in the life of Jabez. Actually, there are a number of patterns, as we will see. And I, I want to introduce the first of those patterns to you right now as we, as we think about who he was. Jabez was a man of sorrow whose mother bore him in sorrow. And so this seed of this woman became one who was more honorable than any of his brothers, a man who called on his God and received a blessing, an inheritance in the land of promise. Who are we talking about? Are we talking about Jabez or are we talking about Jesus? And what I hope that we're impressed about as we read this, about this man, this actual historical character who was honorable in the sight of his God, we will see not just that this is about Jabez. It may not even be possible, brothers and sisters, to to absolutely identify much more about this man beyond what we have. but it points forward. His life, his prayer is a pattern of the one who was to come. Look for the Lord as we read. The spirit of Jabez is the spirit of Christ. So I just suggest that to you at the beginning, not because I'm leaving to you to prove it, but I'm asking you to test it as we continue to move through the study. So as best we can, we will see that his journey is from sorrow and suffering to the hope of blessing. We will read his story of how he was exalted above the meaning of his name, and we will discover the secret of his prayer and why it was that the God of Israel granted his request. All of that is bound up with the study of who Jabez was, and we'll be able to answer all of these, I hope, brothers and sisters, as we move along. 
So let's have a little uh, think about Jabez. Just read his prayer once more. Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. So what's the first thing that we have written about Jabez here? Well, as we say, he was more honorable than his brethren. And here's that word Hebrew, or that word in Hebrew. Um, I'm not going to dazzle you with my Hebrew pronunciation. You'll forgive me. You'll just see it on the screen and, and pronounce it correctly in your own mind. But from what I can tell in the sources that I have, this word is also translated glory. And it also carries the idea, listen to this, of weight. You might have heard that before, I'm sure, having a look at the concordance. But sometimes the word for honorable or glory is that of weight. And I'd suggest to you that it's the complete opposite idea of being vain or empty or worthless. So those are the two different kinds of um, assessments that you could have given to this particular man. Those are the ones that stand pulls apart, as it were, the opposites. Jabez was honorable in the sense of being glorious. He had weight. There, there was something of value and of substance to him. And, you know, we read in scripture about different kinds of people. We read about, uh, for example, in Judges chapter 9. Do you remember when Abimelech, we won't turn this up, but you'll know the, you'll know the passage. Abimelech wanted to exalt himself to be king over Israel. Do you remember that? And it says that he took unto himself a whole bunch of people. He hired vain and light persons, it says. Those are like the complete opposite of being honorable. In Acts chapter 17, it talks about, in the King James, um, lewd fellows of the baser sort. You remember that? The town rabble that would hang out in the Agora. Um, these are people who, who did not have in themselves something of value at that particular time that we're met with them. Of course, there's potential. There's potential in all of us. But there wasn't, I mean, those lewd fellows of the baser sort, the, the agora rabble, those are the people, well, today they, they do different things. They riot in the streets. They march around in yellow vests. They do all kinds of different things. These are, these are troublemaking people. And Jabez was anything but a troublemaking kind of person. He... He prays for something that we might think is very general, but we'll find it is actually very, very specific. Now, would you come with me, brothers and sisters, uh, as we consider this idea of honor and something of value into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to a very familiar passage where it speaks about the value of the gospel as Paul and Timothy had received it into their hearts. And this is the passage where they talk about all their sufferings. One of the passages that they talk about all their sufferings and how it was that they're bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ in their mortal dying bodies. The outward man perishes. And yet in verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, 
hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This is the honorable treasure that we have inside of us. It's the gospel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So it's what Peter calls the exceeding great and precious promises that we've received in Christ. But if we move down to verse 17, it's not just the fact, brothers and sisters, that we, we simply possess the truth, which we do. And we do possess the truth. And the promises that we have are honorable and glorious. But victory in the truth, success in the truth, blessing in the truth comes not just simply from holding the truth, but from holding it in the midst of trial. That makes it even more precious and even more real. And that's what Paul's saying in verse 17. He says that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's the idea behind the word of honorable that Jabez was. There is something of value and of weight. It's that, it's that trial and pressure that we endure when we have the gospel in our hearts. But we hang on to it. We keep it. And it, be, it becomes in us the promise of a future glory. Verse 18, we don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen by faith. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's the weight of glory. And it's not simply the possession of the truth, although that's necessary and we must have. It's the possession of the truth in trial. And I don't know what you think about this, brothers and sisters, but I mean, when I was um, a teenager and you're starting, to, you're starting to grasp the truth, this is my experience. And it used to be so encouraging for me to see other young people get baptized, embrace the hope of the truth. And it still is that. I, I'm still encouraged and heartened, and it, it helps to steal our hearts in the midst of all of our trials. But I'll tell you something that I've, I've learned as I've gotten older in the truth, and that's that as I've started to raise a family together, and as we get involved in the challenges of, of life and ecclesial life in particular, do you know what is a source of even more encouragement for me? It's the older brother and sister who have kept the truth for years. And you find out about, as you get to know them, about the challenges that they've had in their lives. And yet they've held on because that the glorious gospel that is a treasure in their hearts becomes who they are. And the faith in those things gets refined further and further and further. And, and that's why that's such an encouragement. It's what the apostle Peter says in first Peter uh, chapter four, or excuse me, chapter one, just have a look at first Peter chapter one, very well-known passage. This is one of my, it's one of my favorite Phrases to use in a prayer, brothers and sisters, or to hear heard in a prayer. To hear heard in a prayer. I'm not sure that makes sense. You understand what I'm saying? To hear prayed um, by a brother 
First Peter chapter one, verses six and seven. He's talking about that, the great salvation which we have and which we rejoice in, verse six. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye loved. You see the idea there? Again, it's not simply the fact that the promises that we have and the faith that we share, brothers and sisters, are precious because of the promises. Of course that's true. Peter tells us that. We know that to be true. But what makes them even more precious, what makes our faith in those things even more precious is that our faith becomes personal and we believe it and we hang on to it. And it's that which is tried and that which becomes more precious, tried in the trial of fire. So that when that which is not seen is made manifest before us and we're gathered together again, we'll experience a blessing. Jabez was honorable. First Peter chapter two at verse six, you can have a look at that um, later on. That's, that's where it speaks about Jesus as being the precious cornerstone. It's a precious faith. Why was he a precious cornerstone? Well, it certainly had a lot to do with his trial, didn't it? Well, let's continue on and have a look at his name because we've suggested that Jabez is someone who is exalted above the meaning of his name. Well, his name occurs there in verse nine once and twice and there at the beginning of verse 10. But it's a related word to that word for sorrow. And that makes sense uh, because I bear him with sorrow. So the Hebrew for Jabez is there before you. And Kylan Delich tells us that his name is a play on the word sorrow. So they're very connected. It's why his mother named him Jabez, because it's connected with that idea of sorrow. We can tell that right from the text. But if you keep reading down in verse 10, you'll also find that word sorrow in Hebrew again down in at the end of verse 10. He prays that God might keep might be with him keep him from evil that it may not grieve him or cause him sorrow and god granted that which he requested so here we go we have part of the story here as we're going to see in a moment and as we know brothers and sisters sorrow in the truth Suffering in the truth can lead us to a hope of future glory. And this is exactly what Jabez was praying for. He's praying that God would bless him and deliver him out of the evil that his name had become the embodiment of. So we're going to find that sorrow can lead us to a hope of future glory. And the picture, the pattern that we're being given here, as we alluded to at the beginning, is that there's a woman, Jabez's mother, who bears him in sorrow. 
And Jabez is born in the midst of this sorrow. I'd like to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that Jabez's story is the story of the curse of Eden to the promised hope of our redemption from all of it. If we just have a look back at Genesis chapter 3, it's worth having a look here at Genesis chapter 3. Because this is, this is where, brothers and sisters, sorrow comes into the world. This is the, this is the time. And look at how it's felt here by the woman in verse 16. This is the story of sin and sorrow and death entering into the world. And in verse 16, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow. So there was sorrow introduced into the world that the woman would experience, that that the man would experience, that all of creation would experience. But in the midst of this sorrow, what do we have? I mean, Adam turns to his wife in the midst of all of this. And instead of naming her a name that would be reflective of all of the suffering and sorrow that had come into this world. He doesn't do that at all. He calls her name Eve in verse 20, because she was the mother of all living. What in the world does that mean? I used to think when I was uh, a young person that this was, well, both Adam and Eve, they were the mother and father of all living things. They named them as it were. They, They had dominion over them. That's not at all what's being said here. In a very special sense, Eve would become the mother of all living because the seed that she would bear would provide redemption from the curses that had come into the world through sin. We didn't read verse 15, but verse 15 is the story of the sorrowful sorrowful woman bearing in sorrow a seed who would save them from the curses that had entered into the world. I will put enmity, so there was to be war between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. Her seed would bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So this is is redemption from sin and death that had been brought into the world. And that's exactly, brothers and sisters, how it is that the New Testament explains everything that's happening right here. Just come with me to Romans chapter 8. Without going into too much detail right now, we know that Eve had Cain and then Abel. And you know what Abel's name means, right? It means vanity, emptiness. So this sorrow... This vanity, this emptiness is actually part of the design of God to help teach us to hope for a future glory. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 20 of Romans chapter 8. Apostle Paul here says that the creation 
was made subject to vanity or emptiness and all of its related sorrow and suffering, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So what's this hope that creation has been made subject to? It's that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And so part of what this is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that the part of the curse upon the woman, the subjection to vanity and suffering that we read about, the sorrow and bearing, although a real thing for the woman was also something that was speaking about a greater travail that all of her children would experience. All of creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we are saved by hope. It's the hope of that which is in the future. That's what sorrow, the experience of sorrow and suffering and vanity and trial lead us to. Looking at the kingdom and realizing that this is, this is, that this now is not our inheritance in its fullness. That we're looking for something else. That's part of what this pattern is here that we see in the life of Jabez. And so as best we can, we will see that Jabez's journey is one from sorrow and suffering to hope and to blessing because he did have a hope. He had a very particular hope based on the revealed will of God in his life and to the nation of Israel of which he was a part. And so let's, Continue to have a look now, uh, brothers and sisters, and read about this next phrase here, because it says that Jabez called very specifically on the God of Israel. Jabez called on the God of Israel. So I don't know what you think about when you read that, and I guess it could really only be two. Is this... Jabez calling on the God of Israel, the nation, or the man. Well, the way that it's actually depicted in the book of Chronicles, in the genealogy, would suggest one particular answer to that question. In this genealogy, in 1 Chronicles, Israel is the name of a transformed man who was given a new name. Israel is the name of a man who was lifted up beyond the meaning of his original name. Isn't that what Jabez was praying for? You know, there are many connections between, we won't go through all of them now, but it's just, just to pull the curtain back a little bit into some of the, the shadows here. Jabez's prayer itself here is actually a vow, as it would appear. If you just go back to 1 Chronicles 4 and have a look there at your margin, 
And it's not just here in the margin. You can look at some other sources that have a look at this particular Hebrew construction. And we read, oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed. But if you look at the margin, according to this and other sources, it says that Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, if thou wilt bless me indeed. Who prayed like that? Know anybody? That's Jacob, isn't it? Isn't that Jacob at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28, where he prays, he vows to God. And having received very specific promises, Jacob wants to see those promises borne out in his life. And he vows a vow to his God. Just head back there to Genesis chapter 28 and just take a look here at this man, Jacob. This is who the book of Chronicles is pointing to in the genealogy, Jacob is Israel. And this is the beginning of that story as Jacob has to escape from the murderous intentions of his brother to learn to be more honorable than his brother, that he might receive a blessing. So here in Genesis chapter 28, he comes to Bethel and he dreams the dream. We'll just pick up here at verse 13. And it says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac. And then he says, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And so the borders the coasts of the land of Israel are described here. And those coasts would be enlarged, God says to Jacob. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And so he promises Jacob, God does in this prayer, that he would be with him, bring him back safely into the land. And as a response to that, what does Jacob do? He vows a vow. In verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat, raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall Yahweh be my God. And he keep, this is a prayer, keep reading. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. This is part of this prayer that he's offering. It's a, it's a vow as well. Having received the promises, and I believe, brothers and sisters, believing in the promises, he then asks for God to work in his life. He wants to be involved with the revealed will of God, that promise that he's already given him. He wants to participate in faith in that promise. You know what's interesting about his prayer? You know what he prays for? Safekeeping, food to eat, clothes to put on. That's it. 
It's not an extravagant prayer. It's not a covetous prayer. There's such, there's such humility here with Jacob. He's just been promised. He's been given by God the Abrahamic promise after Isaac sent him away to find a wife with that promise. And now he's just asking that God gets him through in his wisdom. Bread to eat and raiment to put on. You know, it's, it's wonderful to have a look at this moment in Jacob's life and how his life is transformed. We're going through in the readings right now. And how it is that he's lifted above the meaning of his name and given the name Israel, begs for a blessing, hanging on to the angel, and the angel blesses him and gives him a new name. No longer Jacob. Now he becomes Israel. And as we said, there's no extravagance here. It's interesting because when Jacob finally meets up with his brother Esau, remember, he's afraid. And in the night of Jacob's trouble, Jacob prays actually what our our uh, Brother Chairman prayed in his prayer before he introduced me. Do you remember what he said? He said that we are not worthy of the least of thy mercies. And that's what Jacob prays to God later on in Genesis chapter 32. But he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all thy truth. Mercy and truth, those are the covenant characteristics of God that stand for his covenants of promise as well. Mercy and truth. That's And for that mercy and truth, it was everything to Jacob. He didn't need like, you know, a whole bunch of food and houses full of clothing. He, he wasn't Esau. He wasn't like that. He was more honorable than his brother was Jacob. And he was lifted up beyond the meaning of his name. And so when Jacob finally does meet um, well, he, let's just turn there. Genesis chapter 33. It's important to see this contrast between Jacob and Esau, because this is the spirit of the prayer of Jabez, based on the revealed will of God and the covenants of promise. Genesis chapter 33. Now look at this at verse nine. This is now, he, Jacob is now Israel. He's met Esau, who looks on him and he he melts before Jacob. And then when a man's ways praise the Lord, even his enemies become at peace with him in certain circumstances, as the Proverbs say. And here it is. Verse 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. I have enough. And in verse 11, Jacob says, take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And so he presents him with the animals as a gift. And so Esau says, I have enough. And Jacob says, I have enough. But there's a great distance between the two enoughs. There's two enoughs. And there's two different Hebrew words there. You know what Esau's enough means? That just means enough. I've got enough. But Jacob, in giving this gift and, and apologizing, to his brother, as it were, in this gift. Take my blessing, he says, for all the wrong that he had done in supplanting him in his former way of life. He now says, verse 11, God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have, what's your margin say? All things. 
all I've got everything, Jacob said. What was, what, how do you get rid of hundreds of animals and still have everything? You'd be a terrible accountant if you did things like that. But he had, what, what was the all that Jacob had? It was all the mercies in all the truth of the covenants and promise that he received. And that's all that mattered to him. They were the alls. And that's why it, it says in the book of Hebrews that we aren't to be covetous. Because if we have God, we have everything. I will be with you, it says in the book of Hebrews. That's quoting from Jacob's life in Hebrews chapter 13. And so that is the spirit of Jacob here. And the, the crazy thing is, brothers and sisters, has anybody ever heard about a book? Um, it's an evangelical book, and it's called The Prayer of Jabez. You can get it. I don't know where you get books in the UK. Um, but over here, you go to Barnes and Nobles or Chapters or whatever. Or I guess you don't do any of that now. You just order it online. Anyway, um, if, you were to order, if you were to see that book, just don't get it. It, it would wonderfully prop you up. Uh, your if your computer table is is sideways you could put it underneath it's really good for that if you get the hardcover that's it because it turns the prayer of jabez that's based in part on the prayer of jacob and his spirit it turns it into the plea of esau for more stuff they got the wrong twin the world does they teach the prosperity gospel has really made inroads here in in this part of the world um, in evangelical circles, certainly, that if you ask God for what you want, might be a bigger house, might be a bigger this, a better that, more expensive this, more expensive that. That's the prayer of Jabez. Just pray in faith. God will give it to you. Are you sick? Pray. God will hear you. If you don't, you must not have enough faith. It's not the prayer of Jabez. It is not at all the prayer of Jabez, brothers and sisters. And we know better than that. So we learn that Jacob grew into Israel. I guess another way to say that is that Jabez is a name to grow out of, as he did in his life. Jabez, the sorrowful one, sorrowful one called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast, that it may not grieve me. He says, well, we are quickly becoming, uh, quickly coming to the end here. But what I would like to do um, is pick up where we left off in a moment. After we have a look at this summary slide here. What do we learn about sorrow? In the wisdom of our heavenly father, Creation has been subjected to bondage with its experience of sorrow and emptiness that we might hope in the glorious liberty of the children of God and the kingdom to come. With hope in his heart, as we will see in the next class, Jabez, there was honor and hope in his heart. He called on the God of Israel to be delivered from sorrow by his blessing. And God willing, we will see how both Jabez and the man of sorrow himself have been delivered from sorrow and suffering and exalted into glorious blessing that we might be included and caught up in those blessings together with him.
let's have a look at his blessing now. I think we can find out exactly what his sorrow was in particular, as we'll see, rather than just more of a general sense of the sorrow that was introduced into the world through sin, which is definitely part of the story. But for Jabez himself, we'll talk a little bit about his sorrow and also find out exactly what the blessing was that he sought. But before we do that, I want to begin in the same way that we did in our first class, which is to have a little look at the genealogy and just to explore a little bit one of the descendants, not Jacob this time, but another descendant whose name is Shem. Remember, we're in the book of First Chronicles. It's Jabez, who is recorded for us in the tribe of Judah, a son of Israel, a son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Shem. And so I'd ask you that you turn to Genesis chapter 9, where we read just a little bit, just kind of tuck this away in our minds and see how this may relate as well to the ultimate blessings that Jabez was seeking in 1 Chronicles 4. So this is Genesis chapter 9, and here we read about Noah and the three sons of Noah. And in particular, we read about how Shem was more honorable than one of his brothers. And it says in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 9, this is after the flood, after the, the recreation of the earth by Noah and his descendants. And we know the story about Noah, not, not a great moment in his life where he plants a vineyard and drinks of the wine and he was drunken and uncovered in his tent and Ham, rather than offering help, um, instead just decides to blaze abroad the matter, as it were. In verse 23, it says that Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. And so there we have it. We have a very dishonorable brother and a couple of honorable brothers. And the preeminent among the two appears to be Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And part of this prophecy which is given concerning Shem is that it would be in the tents of Shem that Japheth in some way would dwell Japheth would, would come into fellowship, as it were, the descendants of Japheth, into the tents of Shem in some way, and Canaan would be subdued, would be the servant of Shem. And, you know, it's interesting, if Japheth is going to be enlarged, if you're wondering, it's a different word than the one that's used in First Chronicles 4, but in order for Japheth to dwell in the tents of Shem and to be enlarged, doesn't it stand to reason that Truly, much more would Shem have to be enlarged 
in order for Japheth being enlarged to dwell in his tents. This is a great implicit blessing given to Shem. And so now with that, we're actually closer than we think we are to Jabez's prayer, because here we have the borders of Shem, as it were, expanding, which becomes a wonderful prophecy, which we read about lots of echoes concerning in the prophets, and as well in the New Testament as well, as we'll see. And so just tuck that away, brothers and sisters, and we'll come back here. Um, don't be intimidated by all the colors that you see before you. If you've just joined us, we went through this in the first class. We were simply picking up where we left off with the exception of the highlight that you'll see right in the middle, which really gives us the secret about what it was that Jabez was praying about. It's a very specific prayer in the midst of a number of other petitions that could be seen to be understood as more general. He asks for blessing. He asks that the hand of God might be with him, that God would keep him from evil, that he might not experience sorrow. And, and all of those are, are, are very broad, but I suggest that this particular one, enlarging my coast, is very specific. And this Hebrew word for coast, um, as you may see in the translation that you have on your lap, or if you've done some digging on this, is simply the Hebrew word for border. And it may be that sometimes the border is a coast. Uh, that's to say where the land meets um, the sea, but it's not always used in that particular way. As a matter of fact, do you have any idea when this particular word in Hebrew would occur most often in all the scriptures? And if you think the book of Joshua, you're exactly right. And that makes sense because it's the book of Joshua that gives to us the record of the way that the land was divided up among the heads of the tribes so that they might have borders within the overall inheritance of Israel. And so in the book of Joshua, where it describes the border of one tribe to another or of one tribe to um, a body of water or one tribe to the inheritance of another nation, if they bordered along, uh, along that particular line. This is the Hebrew word that is used. Jabez prays to God that he might enlarge his border. And if you look through the scriptures, there's all different kinds of ways that you can enlarge your border. Um, and, and there's some horrible ways that you can enlarge your borders. Um, the Gentiles sought to enlarge their borders by taking over the inheritance of the children of Israel in violent ways. But it's also true that the enlarging of the borders of Israel and of the individual tribal inheritances was part of the promise that God had already given. He'd already revealed through his word, his will concerning the borders. And so now this is very specific. And we're going to do this a couple of times in this class. Uh, forgive me for it. I'm happy to make it available if um, I'll send it to uh, Brother Tim. And if you'd like to distribute that, Brother Tim, that's just fine with me. Um, but we have a couple of these charts, and this is a chart entitled Enlarging the Borders of the Land of the Promised Land. I love putting these things, when, anytime you see this particular format, this is really good for a Bible box. It's delicious for that particular purpose. So this would be, uh, I commend that to you for that. Uh, we try and be as brief as we can in these uh, bullet points. 
But, you know, those borders were already revealed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And do you remember when we read in, in Genesis chapter, well, the borders were revealed in Genesis chapter 13. But when we read in Genesis chapter 28 about the promise that God was now giving to Jacob, that his seed would spread abroad, that's the idea here. The inheritance of Israel is being described and promised, but certain things would have to happen in order for that to be fulfilled. And in particular, let's have a look at this one. And with that uh, little abbreviation SW, it's the same exact word here for border that's described in Exodus chapter 34. Um, and we're going to turn there right now to have a look at what God had commanded the children of Israel through Moses concerning the keeping of the festivals of Israel. Verse 23 of Exodus chapter 34. We read, thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. That is the expression for which Jabez prays in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. That's it. God says, I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. I mean, that is, how would you feel about that, brothers? Go up and keep the feasts. Leave your families behind. Don't worry about it. God will be with you. How much faith would that require? That they would, the men, children, appear before the Lord. And even if it was that they did go up as families, as they would in later times, the men were particularly commanded to appear before them. And if they did all come down as entire families, as they certainly did in certain cases, at least, you would have to have faith that the God of Israel would keep the enemies at bay. But God had promised that he would, that he would do this. Now, if we just look over here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is the next bullet point. God promised that he would cast out the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 12, same word there as well. Part of that Part of the, the responsibility of the children of Israel was that they would teach the next generation the truth. And that makes sense because they were, to have, they were going to be inheriting this particular land and this particular struggle to keep the borders of that land according to the promise of God. It was a promise, yes, but it was a promise that they had to participate in individually by faith. And part of that was teaching the next generation the truth, training them up that they might be ready for this particular kind of battle that they faced, dwelling in the midst of a people that they were supposed to drive out, but which we find out the children of Israel never really did drive out completely, did they? Because as in that generation, just as the one who died in the wilderness, the word that they had received, these words that we're reading, were not mixed 
with faith in the hearts of many of those children of Israel. But that is not to be said of Jabez. No, he was different. He had faith. There was something honorable about his faith where he looked at the situation around him in the midst of, of a people, all the tribes of which had not driven out the Canaanites from the land. And Jabez prays that God might be with him to enlarge the borders of his inheritance. I mean, we're starting to get the feeling of why it was that this man's faith was so great. I mean, this is a Joshua faith. This is a Caleb faith. That's what kind of faith we're dealing with here. It's the faith of those with another spirit who believe that God will be with them according to his promise, teaching the next generation the truth. And so in Jabez, in praying for that, brothers and sisters, he's praying that God's already revealed will might be done. Other people may have understood the will, didn't have the faith to participate in. He had the faith to do it. And he wasn't the only one who had faith with that. Even if you look at uh, First Chronicles chapter 4 again, just turn your Bibles there to the, toward the end of that particular chapter. This is really interesting. We find this on more than one occasion, I think, in the record of the, ge of the genealogies in Chronicles. But look at the end of chapter 4. We'll just begin reading at verse 39. Jabez wasn't the only one who had faith to inherit the land of promise, according to the revealed will of God that they had known, or at least should have known, in the nation of Israel. Now, in speaking now, now not of the descendants of Judah, we're talking about the descendants now of Simeon, who were whose inheritance was, whose borders were within the tribe of Judah, we believe. And if we read at verse 39, it says that there were those who went to the entrance of Gedor, even unto the east side of the valley to seek pasture for their flocks. And they found fat pasture and good. And the land was wide and quiet and peaceable for they of Ham had dwelt there of old. Well, that's interesting. They of Ham. But Ham, they were, they were supposed to be the ones who were the servants of Shem, right? According to the prophecy that we read in Genesis chapter 9. And these written by name came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and smote their tents and the habitations that were found there and destroyed them utterly unto this day and dwelt in their rooms because there was pasture for their flocks. And some of them, even of the sons of Simeon, 500 men went to Mount Seir, having for their captains Pelatiah and Neriah and Rephiah and Uziel, the sons of Ishi. And they smote the rest of the Amalekites that were escaped and dwelt there unto this day. Listen to the faith of these men. It was a rough go getting the Amalekites out in the days of Saul. They couldn't do it. But the remnant that were there in this particular time were destroyed by these Faithful men, written by name in the days of Hezekiah. Written by name. God knows exactly who they are. What a, what a that is. I mean, you know those verses where it says how the Lord Jesus knows and calls his sheep by name. 
I mean, that's what God means when he says that he knows and names all the stars. That's what he means. It's not just an expression of his vast power and wisdom, but of his care as well. That if he names the stars, how much more does he know and care for those names of the faithful who live before him and have honor and value in their hearts and their lives and who strive to live their lives in faith as best they can? How much more? Well, in other words, the children here of Simeon, these 500 men, what were they? Well, they were enlarging their borders. It's the same kind of thing that Jabez was praying about. So it's one of those, it's one of those things. It's a kingdom question, isn't it? And there's different suggestions as to who Jabez was, what time he lived, um, it's been suggested, and, and have a look, um, uh, brother, brother Ron Cowie, brother Jim Cowie um, have both taken, uh, and also brother Tony Benson have taken suggestions as to who it was that this Jabez could be. Was he a Rechabite? He could have been. Was he a surviving son of Achan? Interesting. He could have been. But we, we, we won't take a look or make a suggestion about that. I just suggest that to you to take a look at your own time. But no matter what happened, as it relates to the borders of the land of promise, God answered this man's prayer and gave him deliverance, it would seem, from the enemies that had encroached upon the inheritance of God, who should have been driven out, who so many of the children of Israel and their tribes had not the faith to be able to participate in. Jabez did and God blessed him, delivered him from that evil, from that sorrow that had to do with the enemies encroaching or infiltrating their borders. And so faith for Jabez was personal. Here's what I mean. Jabez says, oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, or if thou wouldest bless me indeed. Me. Enlarge my border. That thine hand might be with me. And even though it's not there in the text, by implication of, of course it is, and that's why it's there, that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. You think this is a selfish prayer? No way. It's, there's, there's no selfishness at all in wanting to participate, in desiring to participate in this work to enlarge the borders. This is a, a plea for strength that he might participate in the fulfillment of what God had already revealed. This, it's a prayer for personal connection and identification with the God of Israel and all that he's promised. And God wants us to have that kind of desire to participate in our inheritance today. He want, we are, we've been made a part of the inheritance of the saints of light, it says, Paul says to the Ephesians. The truth and all that it stands for, both now in this life and all that we look forward to in the kingdom, 
when the borders will really be enlarged, when that stone cut out without hands strikes the image at the feet, and what's the stone do? It, it does something the stone never does. It grows into a great mountain to fill the whole earth. That's, that's the ultimate expansion and enlarging of the coast of the inheritance of the saints in light. When the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. And, and we have been, we're experiencing the, the, the beginnings of those things in our acceptance of the truth. Our participation in the new covenant, which will be made with the house of Israel, but which we've received ahead of them in the sense that we've received the Messiah before ever the nation does. What, what a wonderful hope that we have. But we've got to make it personal to ourselves and to our families. It's got to be a personal petition, as Jabez was, to be involved with God's revealed will. There's nothing at all selfish about it. I mean, it's, we desire to participate individually, that we might work together and become an inspiration to each other, a strength, a help to each other so that we can help to keep the borders of our inheritance as best we can. Were the daughters of Zalafahad selfish? Not according to the God of Israel. They've spoken right, he says, concerning their desire to participate in the inheritance. Was it selfish of Aksa, the wife of Othniel, Caleb's daughter, to desire the upper and the nether springs in her land as the borders of the land of promise were beginning to be divided. Nope. It wasn't selfish. It would have required great faith to want to participate into those things and to defend the land of your inheritance and to raise your children within it. Was it selfish of Ruth, the wife of Boaz, To say to Naomi, your God will be my God, and where you buried are buried, in that land, in that inheritance, there will I be buried. There's nothing selfish about this desire to be involved in the promises of God, the exceeding great and precious promises of God that he has made to his people. This is what Jabez was praying for. He's, he knew the way it ought to be, and he wanted that for him, for himself, and, and for all his people, I'm sure, to participate in the promises of God. And we get a little hint, as we'll see, brothers and sisters, I hope, that his there's something about his heritage. Again, it's one of those kingdom questions we cannot be sure, but there's good reason to believe that the goodness that he received in his life was a goodness that overflowed into those who connected themselves to him with the same hope in the same love of the inheritance in the borders of Israel. You know, it's, it's a, it's challenging the subject of borders. It's a really contentious subject in the world. I mentioned that um, I grew up in the United States in New Jersey. Um, 
for those of you who uh, know the Morristown Ecclesia or the Bucks County Ecclesia, which is no longer is a light stand, but the Morristown Ecclesia and Bucks County Ecclesia, um, that's, that's where I grew up. And in the United States, uh, you might have heard something over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so about borders. Borders is quite a, it's quite a hot topic, even within the world. It can be a challenging topic in the brotherhood too. The borders of our inheritance and how we keep those borders. And, you know, we have, we have personal borders, don't we? We have borders of, of the mind personally, places where in our thoughts or in our actions that we ought not to cross and we know we ought not to cross. And the beginning of keeping any borders is, is making sure that we're securing the borders of our own minds as best we can. The, the hardest borders to keep, really. But they're the ones over which we have the most control. You know, our brother Harry Tennant um, gave a, a single class on the prayer of Jabez. I don't know when it was. And it, he took the brothers and sisters there who heard that and me many years later to Malachi chapter one. To have a look at a verse there that speaks about the borders and the, the wonderful lesson that there is for us here. Talked a little bit in our first class about Esau and Jacob. We suggested, uh, however briefly, that the prosperity gospel turns the prayer of Jabez, which finds its spirit in the life of Jacob, into the plea of Esau. And we read about Jacob and Esau here and the nations that they became beginning at verse three of Malachi chapter one. God says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. But what was the spirit of Edom? Well, Edom said, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. And thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down and they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And so there was a border of Edom. It, it, that was their heritage, as verse 3 says, or their inheritance in that particular place. And it was a place that you would look at, you'd stand from your borders in, in Israel, from the border of Israel, and look over into the border of Edom, and you would say that. That over there is the border of wickedness. And, and there's nothing. We have to make sure that we're drawing a distinction, brothers and sisters, between ourselves and the Lord and, and the world, excuse me, between ourselves and the border of wickedness in the world as best we can. And one of the ways that we do that is we make sure that we understand what the revealed will of God is according to this or that. And times change quickly. They change quickly, more quickly now than they ever had, brothers and sisters. I'm sure we all feel that. But we have to make sure that even though times are changing and the world is saying different things, 
And in many places, the preaching of the gospel, more so in, in our part of the world, is being threatened because of laws that are being enacted. I'm a grade four teacher in the public school system in Ontario. And I know how far the borders of wickedness are encroaching into the truth from the world. And we have to be really clear about that with our children. The people, it says, they shall call them the border of wickedness. We have to be really clear as to what wickedness is and what it's not. And, and, and not simply just to be able to make that distinction between the way that the people of God ought to live and the way that the world lives, but we have to be living that too. It's not enough simply to identify that. We must be keeping the borders of our minds as well. And we've got to do it ecclesially too, of course. How are we keeping the borders ecclesially and in, guard, in guarding our fellowship? Um, it was March of last year, the um, Christadelphian magazine had an editorial about the, the, the blessings and the challenges of being able to meet together in this particular way. It's, it's from March, I believe, of last year. So it's, it's a wonderful little article. I hope you've read it. And there's a challenge at the end, a good, healthy reminder to make sure that we as brothers and sisters, when we can meet with everyone and anyone that we want in this particular way, are still continuing to guard our ecclesial fellowship. To make sure that the distinction between us and the world is kept ecclesially and in our families and for us personally as well. So this idea of enlarging the borders, of keeping the borders, what is it? But another way to express the spiritual warfare which we engage in in our lives, which we've taken up, which we've signed up for. It involves an invitation to the world to come into our tents as well. Not as they are, but, but as those with the faith of Jabez, with the hope of Israel, with the belief in the God of Israel, and the covenants of promise and the truth that's been revealed through the scriptures and received by us in these last days. Our inheritance today is in the truth. It's the hope that we've been given in the midst of sorrow. So we come to have a look then at Jabez and the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've hinted at. They were both men of sorrows. And you'll forgive me if I move more click quickly through this than I should, but I'll remind you that I'll be happy to make it available to our brother Tim afterwards. We get the words of Jabez's mother in First Chronicles chapter four. So every bullet point is a, is a quotation from First Chronicles chapter four from the prayer of Jabez. I bear him in sorrow. Jabez is, in the way he's revealed, a wonderful 
template of the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of Christ is definitely there in Jabez, as we shall see, as the seed of the woman. And, you know, although we won't be looking up all these passages, maybe not even all the highlighted ones, you'll remember what it says in Luke chapter 2 concerning Mary about the sorrow that she would experience in her life. It wasn't simply a sorrow that she would experience in giving birth to the Lord as all women experience sorrow, or even in the heightened trial and stress and challenge of giving birth to someone away from your home. Remember, she had to do that in Bethlehem, not even inside of the inn where the people would stay. But it was much more than that. Simeon said to her, a sword, a great long sword, a, a rumphaya, I think it is. It's not that it's not the two-edged sword uh, described in other places that's shorter. This is the long, broad sword would pierce her soul. And Mary experienced sorrow. And e even in the way that Jesus is characterized later on by those who would antagonize him, questioning his father, we're not born of fornication, said the Jews like you are, the implication was, we know who our father is. There, there was sorrow in the life of Mary, and we know that to be true. And was it not true that the Lord himself was more honorable than his brethren? We read about those times where his family had challenged him. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Your mother and your brethren stand without desiring to see you. And they wanted to take him home and let him rest. He's beside himself, they said. They didn't understand who he was. And so Jesus was more honorable than them. But we, we read in Acts chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that it was the risen Lord, after he had, he had risen from the dead at least, and appeared unto James and his family's there in Acts chapter 1 at verse 14 in the upper room gathered together before the Spirit was poured upon them all at Pentecost. And so they were brought back around. It's a beautiful study. But, but what about the sorrow ahead of that? The great challenge that Mary had in her life. But the Lord was more honorable than his brethren. And, you know, there's something else to this, too, brothers and sisters, because in our dealings with each other, um, ecclesially and, and in our families as well, it's really good to remember this particular principle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Jabez. That he not only is he more honorable than his brethren who who had never who would never believed of the nation of Israel. Who rejected him. He's also more honorable than all of those that he came to save. And I mean, he was the beloved son of God and how humble that should keep us and, and restrained maybe more often than we, than we are when we consider that he is more honorable than all of us, his brethren, whom he came to save and who he, he has saved and is saving and will save. He prays as well, Jabez does, and it's the Lord as well. The Lord prays this, that God's hand might be with him. Was there ever a man, brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters, whose hand 
whose God's hand was with more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Was there ever a man? Psalm 80, verse 17. Let, that's the psalm that speaks about the son of the right hand of God, who God makes strong for his self. This is, that, it's a preeminent phrase that speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 49 describes um, the Lord as being like, like an arrow, a shaft in the hand of the God of heaven that thine hand might be with me. And it protected him and kept him and nurtured him and sustained him and blessed him his whole life. That thine hand might be with me, that thou mightest keep me from evil. Isn't that the Lord's prayer? Our brother who closed our last session suggested, uh, alluded to this. You see it in Jacob's prayer. You see it in Jabez's prayer. You see it in the Lord's prayer to be kept from evil from the evil of sin and death in this world. And of the calamity that can fall upon us, that it may not grieve me, that it may not grieve me, that it might not cause me sorrow. Well, the first passage there, you'll know it, brothers and sisters. This is the man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief, who bore our griefs, who said that his soul was exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And who, when he came up to the city, when he came up to look at Jerusalem, he beheld it and he wept over it. This one who was more honorable than his brethren, who were going to experience those terrible judgments of AD 70. And he wept over it. And this is the suffering and sorrow of the son of God. And it's into the fellowship of those sufferings that we come when we come, come to be related to him. But God granted him that which he requested. You know, it says in John chapter 11, it's the record of the raising of Lazarus. And Jesus says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always. But for their sakes which heard it, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So there was always that constant communication between the son and the father. And he prays to God. And he does it in the presence of all of the people to show that there was that relationship there. But he also says, you always hear me. He had always prayed to God. And that's what it, why it says what it does in Hebrews chapter 5 at verse 7, who in the days of his flesh called unto his God with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him out of death. And he was heard and that he feared. God granted his request. And saved him from death. And the Lord no doubt would have prayed for the blessing that the father had promised to him prophetically. These passages here, these three passages, it's another subject. But if you have a look at 
the prophetic promises concerning the tribe of Judah, of which Jabez was a part, do you know what they have to do with? They have to do with the subduing of the enemies of God and the uniting together of the brothers of the tribe. That's what the promises have to do with. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And so the brothers come together here. Initially, they were, they were not honorable at all. They had rejected him. Even the disciples themselves, they all forsook him and fled. And yet they were made honorable. They were made worthy by that which was given to them and the value that had been placed in them in the gospel message. Giving them the hope of the inheritance of the saints in light. Deuteronomy 33 and 7 as well. It also speaks about the subduing of the enemies. And so the line of the tribe of Judah is revealed there in Revelation chapter 5 at verse 5. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the preeminent man of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb that was slain. From the very beginning, way back there in Eden, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the seed and as the offering that would take away the sin and the death that had entered the world by Adam's sin. Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed. And God did, and he's extended that to us to be able to, to share it with us. Isaiah chapter 53, would you come with me there? This is the chapter that speaks about the Lord as the man of sorrows in verses three and four. But you know what's wonderful about Isaiah chapter 53? This man of sorrows is one who later on receives an inheritance, an expanding, enlarging inheritance. In fact, the inheritance is so big that it had to be made larger to accommodate more that were coming into it. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's read about how the borders of the man of sorrows is enlarged. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Put him to sorrow. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him an inheritance. I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And is there any surprise why if we just keep reading we have a woman now not in sorrow who begins to sing aloud 
because her border just got bigger. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate and the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Can you believe that that's the context of Isaiah chapter 53? The enlarging of the inheritance. The dividing of the portion. The dividing of the spoil. And the sorrow of the woman turned into joy because the tents have gotten larger now. We're right back into Genesis chapter 9 again, aren't we? The tents of Shem and Japheth, the Gentiles, coming in to dwell. Blessed in Abraham's seed. So what, what then is the secret of his prayer? The secret of the Lord's prayer. The secret of Jabez's prayer. Why was it that God answered it? And the short answer to that, brothers and sisters, is because he was praying according to the revealed will of God. That's the answer. And there are times in our lives, brothers and sisters, where on a particular specific matter, there are many times where we may not know where to go or what to do. And we apply the principles of our God as best we can. But we have to do all we can to pray according to his will, because there are particular specific things that we can and ought to pray for that God will hear us concerning. So how do we pray according to his will? Well, we pray with all our heart. That is to say, we pray sincerely. We also pray with a thankful spirit. And one of the reasons we pray with, an, with a thankful spirit is to subdue an anxious spirit. You find that there's a lot of anxiety in the world right now. And we feel that too sometimes in different ways to different degrees. And our children are feeling it too, especially during that which is happening over the past couple of years. It's a big, it's a big debate here, maybe not so much anymore in the UK um, as it is in Canada, but there's a... There's a great struggle on whether or not to send the kids back or not do it. And there's the risk of COVID. But you know what the greater risk is now that they're talking about? It's the mental health of children. Pray with a thankful spirit, and it helps to subdue an anxious spirit. That's one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11, 31. You can have a look there. He says, take no thought for this or for that. Don't even take any thought for what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on. There's Jacob's prayer again, right? Food to eat, raiment to put on. God will provide that. What do you pray for? What do you put your focus on? The kingdom of God. That which is before us, it's the inheritance. It's the hope of our inheritance in the kingdom. And if we focus on those things, God's going to bless us. And he's going to get us through. Have a look at Philippians chapter four as well. Beautiful passage here in Philippians 4. 
Philippians chapter 4, we'll have a look at verse 6. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, in everything, he says. This is, he's speaking about praying, as we'll see. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, all natural understanding, that is to say. We, we understand how it works shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Be, be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. To be thankful for that which we receive and to make sure that our, our brothers and sisters and our children are hearing that which we're thankful for. And, and you're talking about those things that you're thankful for. And seeing how that God is working in our lives. We're asked to pray for the wisdom to endure trial. It's the kind of stuff that helps keep murmuring at bay. Not that we don't want to talk about the things that we struggle with, but we, that we don't fixate on those things. It's, it's, it doesn't take long for bitterness to, send, to set in before we spend so much time brooding over the things which, which we can suffer. We have to keep moving on as best we can, brothers and sisters, to join together even when it's difficult to do that, because it's part of that fellowship of working together, of coming together, of suffering together, which helps to get us through. We are to pray, if we're to pray according to his will, we are to pray to know and be able to confess our sins. And maybe in our, in our stronger moments, we feel that we can do that, to ask God as the psalmist does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're also to pray, as we've just read in Philippians chapter four, with specific personal petitions. Like we can do that. We can, we can provide an example for that in the way that we pray um, on behalf of our children with specific personal petitions. And we have to also be clear as well. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know what this is all about, right? You can turn it up later, brothers and sisters. Feel free now if, if, if you like, of course. But this is where the Apostle Paul prays three times that the situation in his life be removed from him. And it was in the wisdom of God that that situation, that challenge, that difficulty would be, would remain in his life as a way to help keep him from being exalted. But God says, I'm going to give you enough grace to get through it. I'll give it to you. I'll get you through it. And so God still heard his prayer, even though it wasn't answered in the exact way that he was hoping it would be answered. And we submit to that in uh, specific particular matters that we may be struggling with. God doesn't want us not to pray about it. Pray about it and keep praying about it. But, but also to be able to accept how God answers that to us. We are also to pray with specific petitions for our brethren. It's not just for ourselves. It's for our brethren, our brothers and sisters. And I just gave you a couple of examples in uh, the passages which are before you. 
about where in Romans chapter 15, the apostle Paul, for example, asks for three particular specific requests about how the brothers and sisters at Rome could pray for him about the things that were coming up in his, his ministry. And all three, you can, do, you can do the homework. All three are answered. They're all answered. And it was a rough go being answered, brothers and sisters. It was a real rough go. Because the Apostle Paul ended up on a boat. Remember how that went? His fourth shipwreck. It's a wonder anyone ever got on the boat with the Apostle Paul. You got to hand it to Brother Luke for going with him on that ship. Again, Paul's been through three shipwrecks. Luke's like, I'll go with you. And God got him through it. The grace of God was able to get him through it above more than he was able to ask or think. If we were to pray according to his will, we were to pray with specific personal petitions, ones for our brethren, and of course for the kingdom to come, for peace to be upon Jerusalem. We won't turn up Numbers chapter 14, but we also have to make sure that we're praying according to the revealed will of God. Numbers chapter 14 shows us that it is possible, brothers and sisters, for us to muster ourselves in our lives to do something which is against the revealed will of God. And here the children of Israel had been sentenced to 48, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And the next morning they got up, they rose up early and they said, we're going to take the land. We've got the faith. Moses said, don't do it. They said, we're going to do it. And they were smitten before their enemies. Because if we turn our, our ears away from the hearing of the law, even our prayers, says the proverb, shall be an abomination to our God. If we actively turn away from those things, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it that way. I want to do it my way. We can't expect a blessing when we take that kind of path. And so we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. Would you turn with me, brothers and sisters, to what might be considered a theme verse in this particular study, which is found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and then 15, before we draw our thoughts to a close. Brother Tim, I will... Um, I can finish in three and a half minutes. Are, are we okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, you please carry on, Jay. Okay, I just want to make sure. All right. Um, I just saw that I was getting near 45 and uh, wanted to make sure. First John chapter five, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And that's the key to the prayer of Jabez. It was the will of God that the borders would be enlarged. And he wanted to participate in that. God blessed him with a participation in that particular part of his will. Verse 15, and if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You have to read that part a couple of times, but I think what's being said here, brothers and sisters, is that we have to pray, we have to ask, and if we believe that God is hearing us, 
we know that God's going to give us what we need. We know that we have what we've asked for because we pray. If we don't know his particular will on a matter, we pray and we say, according to your will. And even the Lord himself in the garden asked for that cup to be removed. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And it was. And the grace of God was able to strengthen and keep the Lord through that offering once for all that he would offer for the redemption of all who would believe in him from sin and death. And so Jabez had an honorable faith in the revealed will of God found in his word. We need to develop a firm faith in God's promises with a fervent desire to participate in their fulfillment in our own lives. For our prayers to be answered, they must be offered in humility and according to the will of God. And in order to pray according to his will, we must learn what his will is. And so we know that we have, we have confidence that Jabez's prayer was answered. How exactly was it answered, brothers and sisters? Well, how exactly was his border enlarged? Maybe that's a kingdom question. Was he a descendant of Achim? Was he a Rechabite? Maybe that's a kingdom question too. But we know that the pattern of his prayer is much more than something from the life of Jacob. It's a pattern for Christ, the man of sorrows, in suffering and in the blessing of glory. Well, although we don't know for sure, I can't resist to just ask you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 2. Because did you know that the, the name Jabez only occurs one other time in all of Scripture? And it occurs in First Chronicles. And do you have any idea in which tribe this place Jabez is described? If you said Judah, you're exactly right. But here in First in Chronicles chapter 2, it is not the name of a man. It's the name of a place. First Chronicles 2, verse 55. It says that the families of the scribes dwelt at Jabez. The Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Sukathites. These are the Kenites that came of Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. Now, I can't tell you for sure, brothers and sisters, if this man is to be connected with this place. But for all that we've learned about him, it seems fitting to me, brothers and sisters, that his inheritance was enlarged to the point. His coast would encompass a place that would later bear his name, where faithful Israelites, even Gentiles who had come into the hope of the God of Israel, would be able to gather together to keep his word, and in doing so, help keep the borders of their inheritance. 
whatever our two verses are, brothers and sisters, let them be of blessing. And let the honor which God has begun to place in us in the gospel message be purified in our suffering. That we might know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it was the Apostle Paul, the tent maker, who spoke these inspired words. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the ecclesia by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.